Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. The reading for today comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. I'll be reading in Portuguese. The English translation will be on the screen. Pois a qual dos anjos Deus alguma vez disse, Tu és meu filho, eu hoje te direi, e outra vez, eu serei seu pai, e ela, ele será o meu filho. E ainda quando Deus introduz o primogênito no mundo, diz, Todos os anjos de Deus o adoram. Quanto aos anjos, ele diz, ele faz dos seus anjos ventos, e dos seus servos clarões reluzentes. Mas a respeito do Filho diz, o teu trono, ó Deus, subsiste para todo o sempre. Cetro de equidade é o cetro do teu reino. Amas a justiça e odeias a iniquidade. Por isso Deus, o teu Deus, excluiu-te dentre os teus companheiros, ungindo-te com óleo de alegria. E também diz, no princípio, Senhor, formaste os fundamentos da terra, e os céus são obras das tuas mãos. Eles perecerão, mas tu permanecerás. Embelecerão como vestimentas. Tu enrolarás como um manto. Como roupas, eles serão trocados. Mas tu permaneces o mesmo, e os teus dias jamais terão fim. A qual dos anjos Deus alguma vez disse, senta-te à minha direita, até que eu faça dos teus inimigos um estrado para os teus pés. Os anjos não são, todos eles, espíritos ministradores enviados para servir aqueles que hão de herdar a salvação. This is God's word. Please be seated. Good morning. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is David Nelson. I'm the pastoral resident here at Trinity City Church. Uh, a couple announcements to start off. First, uh, Brian and I were kind of having a laugh uh, last week because, as some of you know, my wife and I moved into our new house on June the 16th, uh, which was really exciting. Uh, shout out to Tanner and Tyson for helping us out moving. Um, and, but Brian and I were laughing about the fact that I was able to have this major life experience and also get to experience sermon prep that week, which we were really excited about. So uh, we thought that was good. And then uh, in divine providence, uh, I don't know how many of you relate to this experience, but on Monday you feel that tickle in your throat and then it kind of just grows and lingers and all of a sudden Tuesday I had like one of the worst sore throats I've ever had in my life and then that went on for like four or five days and I can see some of you like already like shrinking down a little bit. I don't have COVID. I got tested on Friday. It was negative. So at least in the last 36 hours I have not picked up COVID. But uh, that said, uh, when I was rehearsing this the other day, I got through most of it without coughing, but if I do cough, I apologize. Just bear with me. Be gracious to me. Uh, these things just happen. So uh, as, uh, as Josiah mentioned, this is the last uh, week in our sermon series on the threefold office of Christ. Next week, we'll be going back to our sermon series, The Summer in the Psalms. Um, in addition, next week is July 4th, uh, which is kind of exciting that we're already there, uh, but we will not be meeting together, uh, so please do not come. Take in that service. It'll be available online to you via streaming. Uh, and I think the last announcement I have is that our picnic at the park is finally happening today, uh, hopefully weather permitting. We are planning to do it. We'll be at Miriam Park, which I think is like 10-minute walk that way, if I'm being accurate, but uh, don't follow me. Follow Google Maps or whatever you use. So 
Um, I think that's all the announcements. Oh, uh, and then on the July 11th service, we're changing up our streaming uh, a little bit. Uh, the July 11th service, we will start our streams at the reading of Scripture. So if you plan to take in uh, our service via, uh, via streams, uh, that is how you're going to do that. So um, I think that's all I got for us. So I'm going to pray for our time, and then uh, we'll get into the text. Father, you are good. And you supply all our needs according to your riches and glory. God, um, be with me. Uh, soothe my cough and my throat and uh, help me to preach. Um, God, be with these brothers and sisters in front of me as we take in your word and seek to trust you more, to love you more deeply, to follow you more closely, and to value you supremely above any and all kings. God, we love you. This is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In January of 2020, there was news coming out of a foreign country that was going to shock the world. On the 8th of January, the BBC reported that Prince Harry and Meghan Markle will be stepping back as working members of the British royal family. The news came a few months after rumors that Harry and Meghan were struggling privately under the intense media scrutiny that often comes with the position that they are in. And last March, as some of you might have taken it in, uh, they sat down in the backyard of a mansion in Santa Barbara to speak with Oprah about these difficulties that they were having as members of the royal family. 20 million Americans took in that interview, but if you were not one of them, uh, the brief synopsis of it all was that Harry and Meghan explained that the royal family does not function like a normal family. If I could summarize it, that would be how I would explain it. In this family, Markle and Harry indicated that royalty, royal decorum, and allegiance often superseded basic family customs. For example, early on in the interview, Meghan Markle talked about how the first time that she met her husband's grandmother, which if you know who that is, that's Queen Elizabeth II, she had to curtsy. So when, even though she was meeting her in private, she had to get down and do one of these things, you know? So she was like, why do I have to do that? That's so, like, strange. And she told Oprah, she said, I, I just thought that was part of the fanfare. I didn't think you, like, that was what would happen on the inside. And I said to Harry, but, but this is your grandmother. Like, why do I have to curtsy? And he said, yeah, but it's the queen. What's it like to be around royalty? What's it like to be royal? You know, I personally don't really have any interest in exploring the public or the private lives of the British royal family, but a lot of people get really into this, and a lot of people follow it so closely, and I think part of that has to do with this deep sense of awe and wonder that comes when we speak about royalty. And that's the question that we ought to ask with Jesus the King, is what is King Jesus like? When we say that Jesus is king, we are acknowledging that Jesus is not simply king of the Jews or king of Israel or even king of the church, but that he is the king of the whole world. That as Abraham Kuyper once put it many years ago, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That is the sovereign power of King Jesus. Jesus is king from the tip of Mount Everest to the depths of the Mariana Trench. Jesus is king from the flaming hot volcanoes in the Philippines to the freezing cold ice shelves of Antarctica. 
Jesus is king of every planet in our solar system, from the gas giant of Jupiter to Saturn with its many rings. He's the king over every invisible microscopic atom that makes up our universe. And Jesus is the king of all people, of all sorts of people, from the towering world leaders like Putin and Biden and Kim Jong-un, all the way down to the most downtrodden and broken in the slums of Mumbai. He's king over everything and everyone. There are no stray molecules floating around in King Jesus' creation. And that sort of sovereignty, that sort of power demands us to ask, what's he like? And so as we close out our sermon series on the threefold office of Christ, I want us to ask the question of what is King Jesus like? What does his rule and reign entail? What does it include? And when I meet him, will I have to curtsy? Now, the section of Scripture that we're going to be talking about this morning is mainly addressing Jesus' superiority to angels, but I believe even more than that, the author is addressing Jesus' kingship, not just of angels, but as superior to all other kings and kingdoms. Jesus is the king worthy of our worship, and I want to show us that by looking closely at five of his attributes that I think we see in the text this morning. His title, his army, his throne, his reign, and his people. That's what we'll see this morning. So come with me to verse 5. For did which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. King Jesus' title is the son of God. And there are two references given here that indicates his kingship. Both of them are from the Old Testament, and the first one comes from Psalm chapter 2 in verse 7. And if you've read through Psalm 2 before, it opens with this really provocative question of why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The Psalms ask, why are the nations attempting to overthrow the rule of God? And God's answer to the nations is that He scoffs at them. It says he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on, my, on Zion, on my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. The second reference here comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, and it comes from God's covenant with David. And if you can think back to that story, it's God coming to David and saying to David, I am going to make your kingdom an eternal kingdom. There will always be one of your descendants sitting upon your throne. God says to David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Now, the immediate context of that quote is that it's David's son Solomon who's in reference here. He's going to be the one who oversees the temple building. But there's also this reference to forever, for all time, for eternity. This, the, 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 it's pointing toward this future eternal king from the line of David. And that's what we find in King Jesus. Think back to when Jesus was baptized in the Gospels. What does God say? This is my son. When he's transfigured before his closest disciples, what does God say? This is my son. 
There should have been bells going off in the minds of the listeners at that point in time. Thinking about Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7 going, okay, this is the, the future eternal king that God is referencing. And King Jesus has a title greater than any earthly king because he's the true son of God. But that begs the question, how do you approach the son of God? Can we? Can we get close to him? If, it, like, if you tried to run up to the president of the United States unannounced, you would get shot on the spot. Can we do that with this royalty, this King Jesus? And it's so interesting because the way that Psalm 2 ends is it says that we have to kiss him. Like that's how the rest of Psalm 2 goes. It says, therefore you kings, these people who are raging, plotting in vain, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. God is warning these kings of the earth that judgment is just around the corner. But God is also offering them, like a military commander, terms of peace. The conquering eternal king invites us, invites these kings to, to pay homage, to fear him and kiss him. Meaning what? Meaning, as the last verse says, to come and take refuge in him. To treat Jesus like a shelter amidst a horrible rainstorm. To come under him, to pay him kindness and admire him and to celebrate his rule. I think this gets embodied so well in a statement from John the Baptist. He says in John's Gospel that Jesus must become greater and I must become less. That's what God is calling us to do, to say to ourselves that Jesus' rule and reign is greater than my own rule and reign. That he must become greater and I must become less. And we pray this in the Lord's Prayer, right? When we're saying, let your name be hallowed, let your will be done, let your kingdom come, we're submitting our wills to God. And we're saying, I want you to be great, King Jesus. When I was in crew in college, and if you were in crew, you'd probably know where I'm going with this, but we'd often ask people this question, and there'd be two circles, and we'd ask them, who's on the throne of your life? And on one throne, there's a cross, and it meant to signify that King Jesus is on the throne of your life, and there's another throne that's like self, and who's on the throne of your life? And friends, when you have Jesus on the throne of your life, when you're in that circle, your life becomes wonderfully simpler. It becomes wonderfully simpler because suddenly we become so less concerned about our own plans and our own name and our own glory, and we become more concerned about God's plans and God's glory. There's a lightness in that. There's a happiness in that pressure being off of us. See, look at what Psalm 2 says. It says, there are people who celebrate. There are blessed people, a happy people. It's a happy thing to submit to King Jesus. Don't hear that word submit and think, ooh, that's a bad thing. No, it's a good thing to come under the reign of King Jesus. When you live resistant to him as king, then you try to make your own plans. Try to do things your own way. You live for yourself and you make yourself the ultimate end in everything. And you end up like the nations, like the kings, raging and plotting in vain and becoming ha unhappy when things don't go your way. But this is Jesus' world, and this life, this time here on earth, this little slice is about Him. And so the way to true happiness and joy is to submit to God's kingship, to Jesus' kingship, to God's plan and God's rule. 
And when you do that, when you say to Jesus, be my king, every little thing in your life becomes a means that Jesus is used for his glory and for your good. So when our car won't start, Jesus is wanting you to interact with that tow truck driver, to interact with that, that mechanic that might help fix your car. Your child won't stop screaming. Jesus is trying to teach you about what it looks like to be a long-suffering parent as God the Father is. God is teaching you what that looks like. You get a cold this week? God is trying to teach you that it's Him who works through you, not you who works through you. He empowers you. When those things happen, we can rage against them. We can get angry and say, my car no longer works. I'm sick. My kid won't stop screaming. Or we can submit and say, Jesus, no, you are the wise king, and we happily submit to you. Jesus, the Son of God, the truly eternal king, let's listen to him. Second attribute that I want us to examine is his army. When we think about kings, when we think about people in power, what sort of firepower do they have? What army does he have? Whose, whose servants are surrounding King Jesus? Verse 5 tells us that God never spoke about the angels as he did about King Jesus, and that's because the angels are wholly devoted to King Jesus. It says, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. King Jesus' servants are the angels. That's his army. He's got an army of angels, and it says they serve him. They worship him. He's their guy. He's, he's their leader, their Lord, their treasure. That's how they think about King Jesus. When he says jump, they say, how high? They follow him readily and excitedly. In fact, there's this amazing statement toward the end of the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is interacting with Peter and Peter, of course, at this point in time is trying to protect Jesus as he's being arrested. And Peter, you might remember, cuts off the uh, temple servant's ear and Jesus heals the man. And he says, do you not think, Peter, that I can call, cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Think about the power in that statement. And at that time, Roman legions consisted of about four to 6,000 troops. So Jesus is basically saying, Peter, I got 50,000 spiritual beings who flesh and blood can't do anything against with flaming swords who could come and obliterate everybody here. I don't need your help. This would be a one-sided fight. I'm a king who's got an unmatched army, but Jesus is also the king who did not use this army when it mattered most. When he was at his most vulnerable, when he was being threatened with death, because then he tells Peter, but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Jesus could have saved himself, but he did not. Instead of sending angels to kill the men who would harm him, Jesus was killed for them that these Roman soldiers and temple priests and every sinner in the world might be forgiven of their sins through his blood. Jesus is not a king who eagerly pursues bloodshed. He doesn't go off and seek out fights. He's not readily violent, but he eagerly shed his blood in your place and in mine. So we see King Jesus' title, King Jesus' army. What about his throne? kind of throne does King Jesus sit on? Verse 8, but about the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. 
A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. King Jesus' throne is made of justice, of righteousness. This is actually how God's throne is typically described in the Old Testament, not just here in Psalm 45, which is being quoted, but this also comes up in Psalm 89 and 97, this idea that King Jesus' throne is both justice and righteousness. And by justice, we say that King Jesus is one who acts justly. Unlike other rulers, he is not partial. He is not a king who can be bribed. He does not favor one party over the other. He simply sees a situation and judges rightly. I'll go to my deathbed saying Leviticus is an underrated book, and quotes like this are the reason why, because it's so crystal clear about everything. And it says this in Leviticus 19.15, Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. That's what God calls his people to do. What a great way to live. And the basis of the throne of King Jesus is a love of righteousness and a hatred of wickedness, and it doesn't matter who it's coming from. He's not partial to anybody. I mean, we're talking about the guy who condemned the prayers of the religious Pharisees and celebrated the prayers of a tax collector. He loves righteousness. He hates wickedness. He's impartial. He's a straight shooter, and he calls it just like he sees it. And this is how we ought to be known as people who judge things fairly. Are we known as people who do that, who are impartial, who look at a situation and decide that's what righteousness is, and I'm going to pursue that? It's why the book of James spends so much time on favoring the rich and how that's not in step with the gospel because favoritism and prejudice breeds injustice, which isn't a reflection of our king, our king's throne, or his kingdom. Why would we try to pursue anything other than justice and righteousness? If we want to be like our king, then we judge our neighbor and every situation we come across with fairness. And you see, look, look what else it says. It says, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. A king was commonly anointed with literal oil, but it says that Jesus was anointed with joy. And he's anointed with joy because it says, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Just people, righteous people, have lives of joy. And they have lives of joy because they have nothing to hide. They have nothing to feel guilty over. Their conscience is clear. Wrongdoers do not get lives of joy. They might seem like it. They might act like it. They might say they do, but they never get complete joy. And they, and they don't get joy, and we know we don't, they don't get joy because they're always doing things. They're always seeking things. They're always seeking some new adrenaline rush to get through the day. And you don't seek those things when your life is content. I'm not saying you can't go parachuting, but I'm, I'm, I'm talking about crime. I'm talking about unrighteousness. When you're content, when you're content in justice and righteousness, you become still. You're a person at rest and at peace. Augustine, one of the early church writers, was reflecting on the life that he lived before he trusted in Christ. And he had this really interesting story about a time that he and, and some friends were stealing pear trees off a pear. Uh, or, sorry, pears off a pear tree. <laughs> Head cold problems. Um, but he wrote, We carried off huge load of pears, not to eat them ourselves, but to dump them out to the hogs, 
After barely tasting some of them ourselves, doing this pleased us all the more because it was forbidden. Such was my heart, O God, such was my heart which thou did pity, even in that bottomless pit. Behold, now let my heart confess to thee what it was seeking there. To use a more modern phrase, Augustine saying, I just wanted to watch the world burn. I didn't care about anybody. I just wanted that fleeting pleasure. I did it because it felt good. I did it because I wanted that feeling, that rush, that joy. And God tells us that won't satisfy. You won't find joy there, but you will find joy in righteousness and in justice. That's what our king's throne is based on. You find joy at the throne of Christ. You see, a life of unrighteousness, yeah, it might feel good, but it's like a drop in the bucket compared to the satisfaction of being in the presence of Christ as our king. So are you here this morning seeking joy? Then give up your sins and submit to the just and righteous king. Come and find joy. Come and find peace. Come into the light of Christ's reign. What reign do we talk about? Attribute four, King Jesus' reign. Verse 10. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years never end. King Jesus' reign is forever and ever. It's for all time. Psalm 102 is the psalm being quoted here by the author of Hebrews. And the original author of that psalm is lamenting. And he's lamenting the, the fleetingness of life. He's like, my life is just a shadow, just a vapor. It's, just, it's like grass that just dies right before your very eyes so quickly. You ever struggled with that? Like just the fleetingness of life. And how do we respond, right? Like our common response is like, oh, I just wish there were more hours in the day. Um, I, I, maybe I should just work faster, work harder. But that's not how the psalmist comforts himself. He goes, well, well, I'm finite and changeable and my days are fleeting, but God is infinite and unchanging. He's never changed. And I will find my rest in that. You see, friends, one of the most consoling realities about the reign of Jesus is that his reign will not end and that he himself will never change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It seems like after presidential elections, people already start focusing on the next one, right? Like I remember after Trump was elected in 2016, I saw signs like almost immediately like Bernie 2020, Biden 2020, Harris 2020. Like we were all just ready for the next thing. But this year it's the same thing because all of a sudden Biden gets elected and now there's all these Trump 2024 flags and we're ready for Trump 2024. And we just like we keep seeking for the next thing, the next person, the next leader who we hope is just going to fix everything. But unlike Trump, unlike Biden or whoever, Jesus rules and reigns forever and ever. He'll never give us a reason to look anywhere else. And it's because he does not change. How many of us have lamented that the people that we do vote for, once they get into office, they don't turn out the way that we thought they would? They go back on promises. They, they, they don't turn out the way that we think they do. This person's changed. They become different when they had power. But the Jesus that we'll see in heaven, the Jesus who's reigning right now is the same one that we know by faith, 
The same one who made good on every promise in the Old Testament. He is the same servant-hearted Savior full of grace and truth that we met in his office of prophet and priest and now king. He's better than Trump and he's better than Biden. He's still the same and he'll be the same for all time. Even when the earth and heavens above are changed, our Savior will have not. And so Christian, take heart. That with each fleeting circumstance and changing leader, that Jesus remains the same forever and ever. No matter how much you feel like you've changed or that your life has changed, He's the same. The same Christ that you trusted in 10 years or 20 years or 50 years ago, He's still the same. He's not different. And in addition, a day is coming where there will be no more elections. Oh my gosh, praise God, there will be no more elections coming in eternity. No more campaigns, no more political ads, no more lines of successions, no more parties. Jesus will simply reign as the sovereign king of everything in all the universe, forever and ever. (laughs) He will always be our guy. He'll always be our candidate, our ruler, our leader, our rock, our refuge, our king. We won't look for anybody else. And there won't be anybody else. You know, we all make jokes about how Queen Elizabeth II is just going to live forever. Like she's not going to die. Jesus never will. And we can trust in him. But finally, lastly, how do we relate to this king? Who are the people of this king? Verse 13 and 14 tell us there are two groups. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to those who serve those who inherit salvation? So King Jesus' people, the people that he rules and reigns, he reigns over everybody, but there's two groups. There's a people who submit to him and inherit salvation, and then there are his enemies who do not submit, and they bring down destruction on themselves. And so what Hebrews is telling us, what Jesus is telling us, is that we'll either be with him at the right hand of the Father... Or we'll be an object of shame. We'll be a footstool. And the ultimate question this morning is, which one am I? Because our king said to us, what would it profit if we gained the world and lost our soul? And so we have to ask, who's our supreme authority to? Who do we bend our knee to? Who do we curtsy to? Who gets the authority on the decisions and actions in our life? Whose banner do we wave over our heads? Ultimately, friends, A life outside of Christ, a life outside of submission to him, of waving his banner, of being his friend, will only lead you to sorrow and ruin and emptiness and death. But of course, you might be here unconvinced and you might still be thinking, well, I see that Jesus is king, but I don't know why I should live for him. Or you might be thinking, yeah, I I tried that, but I never actually got any joy out of it. And in both instances, the remedy is a reminder of the gospel. I said in the beginning that stories about royalty tend to pull us in, and I think part of that has to do with the fact that we are raised as people who listen to fairy tales and Disney stories, right? Those words, once upon a time, just hook us in, and we're amazed about these stories of kings and queens and princes and princesses. And like those stories, the gospel also says, once upon a time, there was a great king who was brave and gracious and kind and mighty and strong and lived in a grand palace with servants and sat on a beautiful throne. But in the gospel story, he does not run off to defeat the villain. Instead, the gospel message is that this hero, this king, dies for the villains. 
because we're the villains, because we're the people who have lived as God's enemies by not submitting to his rule and reign. And that rebellion demands justice, but God in love and in grace through Christ has made a plan to save us so that his righteousness would be upheld and our crimes against his kingdom would be paid. And who would bear that punishment in our place? The king himself. The king has died for you in your place and now he entreats you to come. Go and kiss the son, celebrate him, find refuge in him, live for him. And part of living for him means becoming his ambassador to tell the world, those at our jobs or our, our, our schools or our coffee shops or barbershops, how much the Lord has done for us. If you're here this morning and you've submitted your life to Jesus Christ, then I want us to think about someone you can begin to reach out to, someone who you could bring uh, to the throne of grace in prayer or who you might need to tell this story to. So take some time today and this afternoon to pray and ask the Lord for courage to introduce them to King Jesus. King Jesus, he's a prophet and a priest, but he's a king. He's the eternal son of God. He's got an unbeatable army, a mighty throne, a never-ending reign, and subjects willing to die for him and his message. So the answer to our first question is yes, you will have to bow to King Jesus. You will have to, as Meghan Markle put it, curtsy to King Jesus. But you can also run up to King Jesus and throw your arms around King Jesus and kiss King Jesus. You have that kind of access. As Tim Keller put it, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. in the morning for a glass of water is a child. Christian, we have that kind of access to our great thing, great king. And so may Jesus and his offices of prophet and priest and king encourage your hearts and minds today, tomorrow, and forever and ever. Let's pray as I close. God, you are our great king. And Lord, all other kings, all other rulers pale in comparison to you. You are our wise king, our mighty king, and, and no other person do we want to find refuge in other than you. Father, help us to come to you today, tomorrow, and forever and ever as your people, willing subjects, ready to be used by you, the good and wise king of the whole world. And Father, help us to remember as we go home and hear news and read news that you are still reigning, that you are still good, that you're still the king of all kings. God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.